Morning, everyone. Second day of session. Settling in. Settling in very well, actually. To give this talk a title, Returning to the Natural Way. Um, when I reflected on um, what I wanted to talk about today, I was reflecting on what is, what is one of the characteristics or what are, what are the, the fruits of this practice that, um, that, I, that I wish for everyone, you know, coming to do some practice and doing a session? Um, what, what is it that, that I aspire everyone to grow into? And in a word, it's confidence. And <clears throat> there are many things. Confidence. Yeah. And there are many things we could aspire to. It's not just that, it's um, compassion and so on. Um, but confidence is kind of in the same ballpark as equanimity. Um, there's an equanimity you can have uh, where you're in your safe environment, right? Whether it's your safe little zone of samadhi or your safe home or whatever, and you can feel confident there. But true confidence has got nothing, is about um, a certain stance we have in the world, regardless of the circumstances, and we blend into those circumstances. Now, um, it's a confidence, it's a kind of confidence which um, it's not quite what we consider confidence to be in our popular culture. <clears throat> Let me give you a bit of background. I'm not the first person to have said this. I remember Robert Aiken had this first impression when he went to Japan to study Zen in a monastery. Um, so I had the same impression. I was really struck at how confident the Zen monks were. And they walked tall and they were kind of grounded and they were, they were manly. And, um, and they weren't blowing their own trumpet, but they weren't a pushover as well. They're just these open-faced, um, confident people. And um, it doesn't fit a lot of people's idea of um, religion, you know, to have people looking so confident, you know, um, in various forms of Christianity, even in, in, in Buddhism, you know, you're supposed to be humble and supplicating before God, you know, as a, as a miserable sinner. Hmm? Um, or even, even Buddhists, you know, can be, can be in that, that sort of bent over, humble mode all the time. Do you know what? It, it's really, it's not really being humble, it's kind of taking on a um, masquerade of being humble. That's what you're supposed to do. Right? But it, it's, it's not in itself... Um, useful as a, as a permanent way of being in the world, right? Of course, in Zen too, we do lots of bowing, do you know? You, you bend the head down, things like that. And that's, that's an act of humility, do you know, being humble and appreciating uh, what's around you. And, and that act in itself, like that, is kind of like, I'm, I'm not putting my head above yours. We're all, we're all equal here, we're just bowing to the same Buddha nature. So that has its place too, but um, it struck many people how confident Zen monks are. 
And that confidence is, a, is one of the fruits of the practice that it comes out of it. Now, it's very different to um, popular culture forms of confidence, which, which really allude to succeeding and being higher up the hierarchy socially in some kind of way, whether it's intellectually, sport, art, politics, whatever it might be. And one of the, the statements you hear celebrity figures um, saying to young people in particular, you can be anything you want to be, you can be anything you want to be, and it's this kind of popular, unmindless kind of statement that, put people, that they put out there, which actually, when I reflect on it, I think does a lot of harm. Um, because it gives the impression that anyone can, that we have no limits, um, they all have equal opportunities, and that we can do things that we, you know, that are beyond our dreams. And when the vast majority of people realise they, they're not actually there, they feel like they're failing and they feel worse about themselves. Um, we had a, a, a Governor-General in the not-too-distant future who said that and said, oh, you can be anything you want to be. Well, tell that to a, an Aboriginal girl in a remote community who's got nothing else to do but sniff petrol all day, right? Uh, when, you, when you reflect on those realities in life, um, those statements are not wise at all. In fact, they can be harmful. And as I was um, mentioning in that uh, talk I gave a week or two ago, I think at a Zazenkai called the Jewish koan, um, there's a Jewish kind of type of koan um, that says, you know, they're, they're, what if you have these beings who are omnipotent and all-powerful and what, if, what are they lacking is the koan. What are these omnipotent people lacking? They're lacking limitations. Uh -huh. To be human is to be limited, and we should we we should celebrate those limitations rather than denying that they're there. We've all got limitations in terms of how we're going to do at sport because of our genetic inheritance or the shape of our body or whatever, um, or how we, far we're going to go in any circumstance. But all of that confidence is based on gain and loss and praise and blame and relative thinking. And that is not the kind of confidence that we're cultivating through Zen practice. Um, one of the uh, constant metaphors um, which is used in Zen, and particularly in, in Zen's Taoist roots is um, the flow of water, you know, streams, creeks, rivers, you know, and uh, they are used for a metaphor for, for our, the way that we can return to our natural original self, do you know, because our, our natural original self is like the flow of water, do you know, it just keeps going downstream and trickling, you know? And then if it gets dammed or in, its, in a pond, um, it just stops there and it's still. It'll be still there for as long as it needs to be before it starts flowing again. We can't even say it's got patience. It doesn't even know what patience is. Mm -hmm. And uh, so that's a beautiful metaphor. Do you know the, the, the streaming of water? Do you know as, as an expression of what our 
original nature is. And some of the expressions that are used in Zen about the, the spontaneity of the mind, of the awakened mind, it's like a ball in a mountain stream. And it goes, following the course. Mm-hmm. And there's no hindrances in the mind. So, being like that spontaneous stream is what our true nature is. But then, of course, what we need to look at is that what is the hindrances that we have that get in the way of us living our life that way, in that spontaneous, joyful way. Um, One of the books I read um, years ago, uh, which had um, a Zen book, which had quite a um, significant impact on me and helped me put a lot of things in place, was a book by, I think he was a 16th century Japanese teacher, and it was called The Unfettered Mind. And um, the unfettered mind is the mind of no hindrance and therefore no fear that we come across in the Heart Sutra. And the unfettered mind is not filled up with doubts and thinking. It just does what it naturally needs to do. And you see this expressed in a lot of the um, Japanese Zen arts. See, the, the, the Zen arts in Japan are a way of practicing Zen. So the potter at his wheel just spins the wheel over and over again until he gets beyond the fear of making mistakes and hesitating. Mm-hmm. Just spins the wheel, it's beyond praise and blame. The pot will just come out the way the pot comes out with all its flaws. Mm-hmm. Or musicians do the same thing, play the same melody over and over again until you start to get beyond being concerned about mistakes and it just sort of comes out. And as soon as you start thinking about it, you make, you make a mistake. Um, on that theme, um, one of my Irish music teachers said something that really stuck in my mind some years ago and I think I've mentioned it a few times, it's worth mentioning again. Because it's so, it's parallel with Zen practice is so relevant. We, he was talking about one of the um, members of our group um, who was a very good Elian Pipe player and he started as a beginner and he'd only been playing a few years. And um, the, the, the session leader said, well, why he was, became so good? It's one, he practised a lot, which is common sense. And the second thing was that he said that he was prepared to make an idiot of himself. Uh-huh. He was prepared to get up there with other professional musicians and play along with them and make mistakes and look silly. Um, but the difference was not whether he made mistakes or not, but how he related to the mistakes. Like I was saying yesterday with Dogen, his life was one continuous mistake. You can make a mistake and that's part of the practice. Mm -hmm. Or you can make a mistake and you just get so tangled up in thinking and doubting and so on that you you lose that spontaneous connection with life. Some of the things with ritual that happen in in, um, 
in a, in a session or on Tuesday nights is we have a certain ritual, but every now and then mistakes are made, you know, so the mistake is part of the ritual. You just make the mis- mistake and you keep on going. And some of the, the Zendos that I sat in um, in um, Hawaii and also Los Angeles, um, you, would, you would see that a mistake was made and it was so seamless that everyone just kept on going, doing what they were doing, that you wouldn't, most people wouldn't even know that a mistake had been made because there was no hesitation at that point. It's like, yep, we spilt the whatever, spilt the, the incense out of the tray and we just keep going on. Mm-hmm. And, and that's, that's a, a good way to, to be with our life. It doesn't mean we can't stop and reflect on um, particularly serious mistakes we make in our life, do you know, in a more social sense. Um, but the everyday stuff, you make a mistake, you spill the milk, you, you clean it up, you move on. Yes, and you commit to being more mindful about doing it again. But it's not, it's not some uh, getting entangled in some spiralling shame loop within yourself. Basically, the hindrances to that spontaneous, water-like, natural way of being are those uh, variations on the eight worldly winds, that, that sort of dualism that we all get caught in, particularly praise and blame, the fear of making mistakes, mm-hmm. gain and loss, relative thinking, as much as we're caught up in that tangle, um, we will not be confident. Because if you cling to the gain, somewhere along the line, or you cling to the praise, something will come along to knock you off your pedestal, right? Or we'll fear being knocked off the pedestal, right? And if we're in loss, we feel, feel like we're, we're failing, you know, and there's something wrong with us and we get stuck there as well. Mm-hmm. But if you see through praise and blame, and you see through gain and loss, then you will return to that natural way of being because there won't be any hindrance in the mind, an unfettered mind. And one of the important things that comes out of practice, first we have to examine our own deluded way of thinking and how much Jeff or Diana or whoever is caught up how much am I caught up in this deluded thinking? Let's examine it, watch it, label it. Mm-hmm. Don't feed it with storylines. And that's where we start. But if we do that practice, what will also happen is that we don't get caught up in the deluded thinking of others as well. Mm-hmm. Other people that we come across in life are caught up in deluded thinking of praise and blame and gain and loss, etc. Our culture is, right? Um, And so when you see through your own (coughs) deluded thinking, you start to see through the cultural deluded thinking and your family's deluded thinking. Mm -hmm. As long as it's not all out there, as long as we recognise that we're in that process as well, right? And we we don't take a superior position we're all tangled up in it to one degree or another because we're not perfect. But that's what happens 
And then the confidence that grows out of that is not someone who's going to blow their own trumpet. It's a quiet kind of confidence. But neither are you going to be pushed and pulled around by the deluded thinking of others either. That's what happens. Um, There are many ways in which we drop out of this kind of thinking of praise and blame and the hindrances they occur. One way you can do it, um, as they do in, in um, lay life in Japan, is taking up a Zen art. You, know, you practice an art over and over again. And that can be like tea ceremony. And that's a way of actually getting beyond this worry about making mistakes, you know, and praise and blame. You just serve the tea, right? Just serve the tea, you just drink the tea. That's then in everyday life. In our practice, you could take up um, Shikantaza practice and you could just be there, uh, focused, quiet, mindful, watching the moment pass, moment by moment, watching what arises, what passes. And by doing that over and over again, you become that stream, right? You become that impermanent stream. You see that that's essentially what you are, and that can transform over into everyday life. If you want to be braver, you can take up Cohen practice. And Cohen practice was, is, a, is a very ingenious method um, of dealing with doubt. The great doubt. Mm -hmm. And it's like these ingenious Zen teachers from the past have invented koans. So because they knew that we're all caught up in thinking and doubt and do I have Buddha nature or not and all of that. And so what they did is that they created these these language devices um, where we could ro roll all of our doubts up into one little ball and sit with it, sit with the great doubt, right? Okay, so they're kind of like they're saying, well, if you want to doubt, I'll get you to really doubt, uh-huh, and I'll give you this impossible thing that can't be solved intellectually, right, because you're used to solving it with your thinking mind, and, and you'll sit with it, mm-hmm, and... Um, and you sit with the great doubt until something bursts open, some opening occurs and some freedom comes out of that. Sometimes we break through this tangle of praise and blame and gain and loss because something, some tragedy has happened in our lives, something really difficult has come along. We've found out we've got a life-threatening illness. Our marriage is broken up. We've lost our job. There's a fall. The fall, the fall is a religious theme mm -hmm. through all religions. And it's through that fall sometimes that we realise what's really important in life and we drop out of all of that crazy kind of thinking that goes on. Um, let me share with you a, personally um, a dream I had when I first started my 
um, Zen training in Japan with Kabori Roshi. And I've been doing it, I, I think, maybe two or three months that I'd been into the, the program in the temple. And then I had this vivid dream. And it's, you know you have some kind of dreams, it's kind of like life really trying to tell you something. And they're very, very vivid. And it's like they really happen and you've just got to listen to them. You can't ignore them. It was one of those dreams. And in the dream, I'm riding along on a bike and I'm riding past my teacher, Kabori Roshi, and I take my hands off the, the steering bars and look, hey, like I'm riding with no hands. And then the next thing that happens is that I crash and I become a paraplegic. And Kabori Roshi is looking on kind of wisely um, going, hmm, I thought something like this might happen. <laughs> and he's kind of non-judgmental, but it's kind of like, yeah, I'm not surprised. And then it switches to me being an older middle-aged man sitting in front of the fire reading a book in a wheelchair. Only the difference is that in that picture, I'm very calm and, very, and, and, and there's a sense of equanimity and calm and peace. While I was riding along on the bike, there wasn't peace there at all. Uh -huh. So it's kind of like it, it, it really spoke to me and, and I remembered it and I wrote it down because I didn't want to forget that dream. And, uh, that, and something, you know, as we go through life in our Zen practice, that there's, there's things that, that that metaphor of that dream speaks to. We fall off the bike. Mm -hmm. And depending on how we deal with how we fall off the bike, it might lead us deeper into our practice. Right? It can either, it's a choice, it can lead you deeper into practice, or you can just complain and be a victim of life. The choice is ours, which way we go. But all of those falls are an opportunity to practice. And all of the Zen teachers in the past have always emphasised that point. To finish with, um, there is a, an interesting koan in the Mumon Khan, which kind of illustrates this sense of spontaneity and spontaneous action and being outside of the prison of praise and blame. And it's, uh, it's called Kuishan Kicks Over the Water Jug. And so what the story was, was that in this particular monastery where he practised, there was a new big temple going to be built on the mountain and say so they, they knew it needed a new teacher to take it over. And so the, uh, the, the current abbot in the, in the, in the temple um, created a, a Dharma contest, as they often did, to challenge all of the monks to see who had the clearest insight to be the best person to take over the new monastery. So the teacher put the water jug in the middle of the floor and said to everyone, what is this? Mm -hmm. And the head monk says, well, it's not a wooden slipper. Uh, and other people made other remarks. And then everyone went, oh, Kiwishan, look, there's a Dharma contest going on. Because Kiwishan was the, was the cook. 
like Jan. He was in the cook there cooking away, just had to get all the rice and things ready. So he's just absorbed with his pots and his pans and, you know, which is boiling and focused on getting the meal out. And, and everyone said, hey, there's a Dharma contest, you better come in. And he's going, oh, well, I've got to cook the dinner, I'm not interested in all this stuff, you know. So they said, no, you've got to come out. So he comes out and he kicks over the water jug and goes back into the kitchen, right? Kicks it over. I've got to get this dinner out on time, right? That's what he was interested in, right? And, 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 and it demonstrated his clear insight, right? It wasn't planned, um, but he's, he's just interested in the day-to-day thing that needed to come next and his duty as the, as the, as the cook to, to, to feed everyone. He's not interested in becoming the, the, the next big guru of the next temple on the big mountain. Right? So he demonstrates by his actions that he's actually the best person for the job. So, confidence, quiet confidence, is a manifestation of what we do. Um, and it is a quiet confidence. It's not, it's not um, blowing one's trumpet. It's not being pushed around by the people's deluded ideas of who they think they are or we are. Um, and with that quiet confidence, if we can cultivate that quiet confidence, then it's really akin to equanimity um, that we carry through our life, um, through all kinds of circumstances. Thank you.